Amen. Amen. Okay, well, if everybody wants to go ahead and take their Bibles, open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're just going to continue through today with our survey of the book of 1 Timothy. I think this uh, chapter might be a chapter that many may not have really done much study in, maybe haven't uh, felt a necessity or a reason really to go study 1 Timothy chapter 5. Seems to be, I know it's always been obviously a neglected um, section of scripture to me, at least the first 16 verses, which are very interesting that we'll we'll look at, but um, I think I was just going to say as we move into chapter 5, I think that most of you are aware aware that um, the chapter divisions in our Bibles actually weren't written there by the Apostle Paul or any of the author of scriptures. These chapter divisions and verse divisions came much later, uh, much, much later actually, being that the first English version of the Bible to have chapter and division verses wasn't until the Geneva Bible in 1560. So these chapter divisions actually come very, very late. So I thought I would just note the connection from chapter 4, where we looked at last week, to chapter 5. And I think that connection is found in the very last verse of chapter 4, in verse 16, where there it said, um, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, persevere in these things, For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And so I think it's that last phrase in verse 16, and for those who hear you, that's really um, leading the Apostle Paul in his mind to uh, go on to what we have in these next uh, few chapters, actually. Paul, in verse 16, just referenced the hearers of Timothy's teachings. And so now he's actually going to go on to address these different groups, these specific groups within the church that the Apostle Paul would be addressing, that he would be ministering to, that he would be teaching. So the first group that he actually addresses here in chapter 5, verse 1, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. The first group that Paul addresses to Timothy is the older men of the church. The older men of the church. And this is what he says in verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. See that? Um, the Apostle Paul is fully aware that young Timothy will at some point have to address the older men of the church. He, he's going to be teaching even the older men of the church. He may even be having to correct. He may even be having to rebuke the older men of the church. We know certainly He's going to have to be addressing and rebuking the, the false teachers in his church who were most likely much older than him. So the Apostle Paul here tells him in, in what way he is to address and correct these older men. He says he's, he's to appeal to them as a father. That's the proper way to, to address the older men in Timothy's church is to appeal to them as fathers. And so what's the assumption there? in what Paul is telling Timothy to address these men as fathers, well, I think the assumption is that you're to address older men with the utmost respect and utmost reverence, um, just as Timothy would have known that God had said to honor your father and mother, 
and to have that view of your parents and to treat them as those who were to be honored. Um, Timothy knew the fifth commandment. Um, I think honoring of the fathers and mothers may be one of those um, seemingly lost truths of these days, um, not only in culture, but I think it's also affected the church. I know that I, I didn't grow up having the proper view of my parents. I still don't have the proper view of my parents that I should as far as honoring them in a biblical way. But I think Timothy knew exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying as he, as he made this statement telling him to address the older men as fathers. The next group of men, he says, to the younger men. If you're going to address the younger men, address them as brothers, um, Paul tells Timothy. So here he's insinuating that um, that level that there's to be in a brotherhood, a level of equality. There's to be a spirit of equality in a sense, um, even though there is that differentiation in the church of Ephesus between Timothy and the other brothers of the church. Timothy's obviously going to have a higher role of authority in the church, but even with that authority, he's to deal with the the brothers in the church, even the younger brother, as brothers. He's not to be speaking down of them in a sense. There's to be that 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 equality that there should be amongst brothers in a family. They're all in one sense on the same playing field. Um, and if you haven't caught the argument so far, or what the apostle Paul is saying here, Paul's painting the 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 body of Christ, the church, as a family. He's using that, that analogy through all of this. That's actually how he described, if you remember back to the verse that we've made, really like as the summarizing verse of 1 Timothy, where he told um, Timothy, I write to you so that you might know how you're to conduct yourself in what? In the household of God, he calls it. So Paul's already referred to the church as a household. And so the church is to be our family in the most intimate uh, of, of senses, so much that, that Jesus could say in Luke 8:20, uh, when, when they told him that your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you, see you, Jesus answered and said to them, "My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it." So we see that in one sense, the, the church is even your truer family than your natural family. Um, and, and I think we can all relate to that and, and have experienced just that much more intimate relationship that we have between like-minded believers than we do our unbelieving family members. There's just a totally different connection there than we have, and that's something I'm sure maybe over the holidays here as we get together with our families that will be even more evident, just that different relationship that we have between fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and and our unbelieving family members. Um, so Paul goes on here on how to minister to these other, these other people in the church. He says, verse 2, to relate to the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters. And the Apostle Paul adds, in all purity, in all purity when addressing the younger women. Obviously, the Apostle Paul is, is adding this little extra phrase here to insist and to remind Timothy that when you're dealing with the sisters of the church, you're to do that with the, the utmost um, moral purity. You're, you're to position yourself in dealing with the women of the church in such a way that you're to remain above reproach in all ways. Right? That was the requirement for him to be uh, an overseer, to be an, an elder in the church. And so you must uh, remain above reproach when dealing with the women. But this is the presentation that Paul's giving to the, to the church, that it is the household it's the household of God. Now, 
Paul goes on here, and this is what I this is what I was introducing this chapter as. It's maybe like a neglected section of First Timothy, maybe a a text that you haven't heard preached before, maybe you haven't done an in-depth study of. I honestly had not done a lot of study in this text prior to this. I really didn't feel like I had a reason to. But the next group here that the Apostle Paul is going to address is the widows of the church. The widows of the church. And it's very interesting to me how much uh, text the Apostle Paul uh, attributes here to the widows. It goes all the way from verse 3 all the way to verse 16. The Apostle Paul deals with the widows of the church. I think the widows had always actually been a concern from the church. If you think back to as early as Acts chapter 6, when you remember that the, the Hellenistic widows were uh, getting shorted in the distribution of bread, and it was almost the whole issue of, of the widows and, and caring for the widows is, is the whole reason that I think the, the office of the diaconate, that the, the, that the deacons role was formed was to, to care and to take care of the widows in Acts chapter 6, if you, if you see that development there as being an early form of the diaconate. So the widows have always been an issue in the early church. You can imagine in the first century the, just the uh, situation that especially an older, an older woman, uh, with the, the difficulty of finding yourself in a situation where you lose your husband at an old age and having to fend for yourself and, and being able to provide for yourself. You can see how they would be in a very difficult spot. And so the Apostle Paul is aware of this and he addresses it with a lot of text um, you've probably even noticed in your own study of the scriptures just how often that you come across statements where God is speaking about the widows and the orphans and that the people of God are to take care of them and God actually um, uh, rebukes the nations who don't do that. It's great offense not to take care of those who can't take care of themselves and um, I'm sure you've noticed that. I have a lot of texts here. I wasn't going to go through all of them all but I'm, I'm sure you're aware that God has a special place, apparently, in his heart for the widows and orphans. So we as individuals, and Paul here is speaking collectively as the church, are to care for the widows in our midst. Um, but what Paul's making clear, and what, it, what apparently he wrote this section for, is to say that not all widows are to be considered widows in the formal sense that Paul's addressing here. And that's, that's what's really kind of interesting, that this is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with. So let's notice here in verse 3 as we dive into this text um, how Paul makes this differentiation between widows. In verse 3 he says, To honor widows who are widows indeed. Honor the widows who are widows indeed. So there's a, there's a couple of things here already in verse 3 to note. Um, first of all, the honoring of widows, that, that language of honoring them, is honoring them in a, a financial sense, right? Just as we're going to see in 1 Timothy 5.17 where it says to honor uh, those elders who excel and devote themselves to preaching and teaching, that's speaking of a financial honoring. And so the same thing here as we'll see in the context where to, uh, he's speaking of the church being fully responsible to financially care for these widows. That's, that's what he's talking about. I thought I would note if just verse 9, where he uses the language of putting these widows who are widows indeed on the list. Put them on the list. So I think that's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, that they had a list, a formal list. Um, when you study through, the, especially the pastoral epistles, 
there's many, many theologians um, who don't see the pastoral epistles being uh, legitimate, legitimately scripture in a sense or from the Apostle Paul even because one of their, their problems is how well developed they see the, the first century church being in the pastoral epistles. And they say, well, there's no way the church was that structured or that formalized or that organized at this early point in time. But um, it doesn't surprise me at all that there's this formalization at this point. As I said, as early as Acts chapter 6, they were already dealing with, with these kind of issues and formalizing a structure to tend to the needs of the widow. So none of that's surprising to me at all. Um, I don't have any sort of problem seeing this as being uh, legitimate at all. And, and also we like to note that if there was a widow's list, um, you, can, you can be sure that there was a membership list. Mm-hmm. Right? That's always a, a little argument for church membership. Okay, so what else is Paul going to go on to develop here? Um, that the church is to only financially support the widows who are widows indeed, meaning he's speaking of, of widows in a formalized sense, in a certain sense, a, a legitimate sense, but why not just indiscriminately support every woman who loses her husband? Well, Paul's actually going to give a couple reasons in this text. Um, verse 16, if you look down to verse 16, the last thing stated, um, in about the middle of verse 16, he says, one reason is so that the church will not be burdened. So that the church will not be burdened. Um, as we're going to see here, the church has a very... Uh, uh, a very high responsibility as far as handling the, the finances and handling the money that is God's money. And there's to be great care and concern for the church as far as how that money is dealt out. It's not to be dealt out indiscriminately. Um, it's to be cared for and very seriously, a very serious considerations are to be made before the church just starts um, handing out money. So we'll see these differ- differentiations that Paul's going to make. Um, so let's get into these requirements that the Apostle Paul, he's saying only support the widows who are widows indeed. So now he's going to go on to explain, well, who are these widows indeed? Who are the widows in this sense that he's going to say to take care of? Well, in verse, in verse 5, the first qualification we see is it says that she who is a widow indeed is one who has been left alone. One who has been left alone. So... In this, in this language, the Apostle Paul is saying is there's just nobody else as far as family left who would have the responsibility primarily to care for them. See, they have no family at all left. Look at verse 4. Uh, Paul's already kind of explained that, that scenario, that situation as far as if there is family, they should be the ones responsible to care. Verse 4 says, because if any widow has children or grandchildren... They must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. So first thing the church has to determine is if there's family members who are responsible for their mother or even their grandmother to take care of them if they become a widow. So first things first, as far as that's concerned, and that's, that's even as the flow of thought continues, That's where that famous verse is seen, verse 8. This is the context of that famous verse 8. If anybody does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's the responsibility that that 
um, we have for our family as far as to take care of them. To not do so is such a heinous sin that it's putting you outside of the pale of Christianity, which is, which is pretty extreme, but um, to the Apostle Paul, it's a great responsibility. Yes, sir? Okay, so we're supposed to take care of the ones that are on the list, right? Essentially, that's what he's painting the picture. Well, what I just said, these are the ones who would not be on the list that you're to take okay, care of. Okay, but, but either, but that we're even having to talk whether or not they'd be on the list because they're a part of the local fellowship. Right, right, right. Is he talking about people who have family members who are not part of the fellowship because they're unbelievers? Right. Well, yes. As a say, your unbelieving mother, you would be responsible to take care of her, believer or not. Right. That's still our responsibility to care for our family, believing or not. Um, I don't think that the church, even if your mother right has nobody else, that the church is responsible for unbelievers in the full sense. Like because we're going to see the requirements to be taken care of by the church is not. Certainly not, unbelievers would not qualify. So, you know, those distinctions are, are certainly there. Um, let's just read, I, just, I don't want to spend all day on this section, because I don't know how relevant it is. We don't have a whole lot of widows. Our church isn't very big. But I did want to at least work through this text. I'm just going to read through it, unless you all have some other questions. Um, I'm going to read through these positive attributes that Paul puts forward as far as saying this is what qualifies somebody to be a widow indeed, a widow who the church should be responsible for taking care of. Um, But before I even start reading, I'm going to start at verse 5, reading through this. But I just wanted to say one thing. I wanted to call all the ladies to attention as we read through this for a couple reasons. First of all, the Apostle Paul is about to take um, about five and a half verses here, um, putting forth these positive attributes of a woman, of a godly woman, of a woman who is to be worthy of having the church's support further down the road if she becomes a widow. And so I just call the women uh, to attention to say, if you want the church to, to support you someday, you need to meet these qualifications. So as we view these things, let these things stir you up to have the same priorities that the Apostle Paul has as far as what a woman's um, calling is in this life, what kind of, um, if you think back, remember we looked at first Timothy chapter two, where it, he told the women, don't adorn yourselves with, with jewelry, gold and earrings and all these other types of things. What did he say to adorn yourself with? Not clothes, but good works. And so here the apostle Paul is actually going to go through and list in his viewpoint, what a lot of these works are that women should be striving towards. So let's look at this, this list here of these good works, and stop me if you have a question. I'm really just going to try to to work through a lot of this for the sake of time. But verse 5 says this, Now she who is a widow indeed is one who has been left alone and has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. She must be a praying woman, first of all. Verse 6, But she who gives herself to one pleasures is dead, even while she lives. Verse 7, prescribe these things as well so that they may, may be above reproach. I thought that was interesting because that's the language Paul uses of, of elders and deacons of being above reproach. He holds widows to the same standard. They must be above reproach, just meaning there must not be any um, gross sin in their life, any, any sin that would disqualify them from, from, uh, from really 
being a Christian or, or something that would affect their profession of faith, something that would disqualify them in that sense. Verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, which putting an age limit on there really just assumes that if she's younger than 60, she's still able to support herself and to work if need be, and the church wouldn't be responsible at that point. Um, he goes on saying, having been the wife of one man, she must be faith- have been faithful to her husband. Verse 10, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, again, I, just, I think we can qualify that. Paul's not speaking to the issue of barrenness or something like that. He's just speaking very generally in that sense that most women bear children. He goes on, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, which if you know anything about that, that duty um, in the first century, this was the most, this was the most humblest of duties. This was a, the duty of the slaves of the house would be to, and so he's speaking here of these women being worthy uh, or willing to do the most humblest of duties to the, to the body of Christ. If she has assisted those in distress, and if she has deso- uh, de- devoted herself to every good work, those are the positive, that's the positive presentation. As I read that, I just thought, wow, it seems harder to be a widow than it does to be an elder. <laughs> You know, I mean, those are those are some qualifications there. So, you know, I read that. I just thought, man, this is this is real Christianity here. The Apostle Paul has a view of of not just elders and deacons, but all Christians are to be pursuing godliness and are to be living their lives for the glory of God. I mean, fully, fully devoted to supporting the people of God, the, the washing the saints feet. That just means serving the church of God. In, in, in any way, even in the most humblest of ways. Um, the Apostle Paul is unashamedly believes that faith leads to godliness. So, and, and then what's even interesting, and this is, Paul's just begun. Paul goes on, and in this, this next section here is almost like the, those were the positive things that women are to seek uh, to, as far as godliness is concerned. Now he's presenting what women are to avoid, what, what are the negative aspects and, uh, and, and requirements of what they're to avoid. Verse 11 says, but refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they, go, they want to go get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. And most of the commentators are saying that what's going on here is that they, they, they probably pledged um, uh, not to get married. They, they lost their husband. I'm not going to get married. I'm going to devote myself to Christ. But instead they're... They're leaving that that pledge that they made and wanting to get married instead then and are, are leaving this and are forsaking this pledge that they already made. Better not to make an oath to the Lord than to make an oath and break it, right? Um, verse 13 says, At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore... I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those 
who are widows indeed. So that's a pretty high calling, ladies. Pretty high calling indeed. So, Can you explain um, more yes, on good works? Say that again? Explain more on good works? Explain more on good works, sure. Um, so I think these are very, in a sense, he's giving a lot of specific examples. But in a sense, these are very general, right? Because not every woman is going to bear children. Some women can't bear children. So in that sense, he's just giving um, general uh, works that women are called to do. And, I mean, we can pick out some of these. Um, just pick out any, any one of these. I mean, he's saying, he said just a reputation for good works, bringing up children, showing hospitality to strangers. I know that's a hard one, isn't it? Like, I don't know. I don't feel always comfortable just letting random people into the house. Um, so that would probably be something you'd have to use discernment on. But just that willingness to um, open your house and to take care of strangers and to um, maybe like visiting pastors or preachers that we have, being willing to take them in and to serve them and to cook them meals and give them a place to stay. Those kind of things, I think, are, are very fitting for women, right, that they can use their gifts and use their gifts of hospitality, right? That hospitality is one that they could definitely serve the church of God with. Um, where's another list of good works found that Paul lists for, for women? Does anybody know where Paul lists another? Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31's a good example. Yeah. I was thinking of one more. Titus. Titus. Chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 is another list. So I, I think, I got you, Brother Mike. I think it is very interesting that Paul does go through some of these and gives specific examples. But I just think in general, um, just as with elders, it's not like a checklist, right, in a sense, because nobody's perfect in any of these things, right? No elder is perfectly doing all of the things that an elder is called to do. So all of these are things that you should be pursuing, you should be growing in. That's why I said, like, take this list and, like, make sure these are your priorities and start working in those areas if maybe you haven't been working in some of these areas and, and let that become your lifestyle, something that, that can be noticeably seen by the church, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I thought about some of those other lists that we could maybe go through them, but for the sake of time, I didn't just want to read them all, but they're there. Titus chapter 2, Proverbs chapter 31, just picturing a diligent, godly woman who's not wasting her time. Like he says, becoming idle, like just not doing anything, just going around, hanging out at people's houses, but not pursuing God and being uh, actively productive. I think the Proverbs 31 woman is just showing a productive woman who is busy with her hands about the Lord's work. So, Brother Mike, I see you back there. Verse 9. A widow is to be put on the list only she is not less than 60 years old. Is that the part? Or the married only once? Verse 9. Verse 9. So, most commentators are assuming that the reason he puts an age limit before somebody can be supported by the church is that if you're younger than 60, you can work and support yourself, even if you're a woman. Right? So they still have the ability. Uh, 60 just seemed to be like in, in, in early Greek writings, like the, the limit where a woman became old in the sense that she, it was kind of uh, assumed you wouldn't work anymore past 60. Right. So that's the only reason, though, because of the financial There's another reason that he just gave is that young, the women who are younger than 60 
become these busybodies and become idle. And so he's saying, be busy, right? Find something productive to do. Don't just be going around, hanging out at people's houses, becoming gossips, right? So what was it, Juan or yes, Terry? Yeah, I was going to say that Calvin's wife was actually, you know, I was, uh, the second time she had been married, she was a widow. Hmm. Her first husband died. Oh. So she was still able to bear children and be the wife to a husband, you know, hmm. at that. I'm not too sure how old she was when she married John Calvin, but. I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Yes, ma'am. Um, I guess I'm confused on verse 14. Mm-hmm. Um, Very good, Terry. Sharp. Yeah, that's good. I think so. The first group of women that aren't to get married are these who had made, I think, a commitment to the Lord not to get married, but they are wanting to. They're breaking their oaths, right? So if you've made a commitment not to get remarried, you shouldn't go get remarried. But Paul's saying there's a different group of ladies who he's saying need to get married, right? And these are the ones who are becoming busybodies. But your question is like, how does that jive with the qualification there in verse 9 that to be a widow, you must be the wife of one man? And I wasn't really going to, I have the, the whole issue in my notes. I think it's a helpful issue because it also helps us interpret the qualification for an elder. Remember that qualification of, of an elder must be the what? The husband of one wife. And so the whole question is, what does Paul mean by that? Is he saying, can an elder never have been remarried for any reason whatsoever, even if it was a legitimate divorce or if his wife died? But I think this, in chapter 5, Paul gives us a proof text showing us um, that that can't be what Paul means. Because the language is, the question is, what does it mean to be a a one-woman man or a one-husband wife? I think it must mean that you're faithful to the husband or wife that you have. It's not saying you can never be remarried. Because Paul says, like, as you pointed out in verse 14, he's telling them to get married. So he's not disqualifying them, right? He's not instructing them to go do something that's going to disqualify them from widowhood, right? So I think we must take that one woman man and the one man woman to mean just a, 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 a life of faithfulness to whoever it is you're married to. Or that does, or that's a contradiction, right? So I, it's good that you pointed that out. Brother Mike. Real quick, I yeah. Think yeah. Uh huh. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah, it's certainly saying you must be faith, sexually pure and faithful. The other thing that I think the text here. Also, as a lot of people say, oh, when Paul says to the elders, you must be a one-woman man, he's, um, he's restricting against polygamy, right? But I think, again, in chapter 5, that's not what he's saying, because he's saying it's the exact same. And the reason the text is important in verse 9 is the exact same grammatical structure for the women. They must be one-manned women. It's the exact same structure in both uh, qualifications, but there's no such thing as um, polyandry is what they refer to it, I believe, where you have where there's one woman with multiple husbands. So Paul would not be restricting something that never that doesn't exist. So that's not what Paul's restricting, having multiple 
husbands, right? So when he's saying you must be the husband of one, you must be the wife of one husband, he's not saying you can't have multiple husbands. That's not what he's restricting because there wasn't a such thing. You see what I'm saying? Maybe kind of confusing. Yes, ma'am. I'll get you next, Tony. Um, what you're um, talking about, like, she should be, about it meaning she should be faithful to that one husband? Yes, ma'am. Um, makes sense to me because there was that woman that Jesus talked to at the well. Mm. She said she had no husband yet, but yet she had many husbands. Right. So she wasn't faithful to one man. Yeah, perfect example where Jesus called that out. He definitely called that out. Tony. Okay, in verse 14, where it talks about uh, I will that the young women be married. Yes, sir. Um, I think it also begs the question that even though he's telling them to be married because if their husband is dead legally, they can't, you know, by yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. But they still would be disqualified from being on that widow uh, role. You think that would disqualify them? Yeah, because he's telling them to go and get married again. So they got support now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying if they lost that husband that they remarried, Paul wouldn't, by having been remarried, that wouldn't disqualify them from then later being able to receive from the church. Yeah, I would say, yeah, if they get married, they're not going to be receiving from the church at that point. I'm saying if they lose that husband later on and now they've been married twice, the restriction to be the wife of one man wouldn't be putting them outside of the pale of church support. You know what I'm saying? I think both have to be true at the same time. You know what I'm saying? But yes, once they got married, they would not be, the church would not be taking care of them if they got remarried at that point. Definitely. Definitely would not be. Um, y'all want to keep moving? We got maybe, I'm going to push this to the limit here. Let's go on next to this next section here, which may be more relevant, maybe. I think that is a very interesting section. But um, So Paul's not only concerned with um, the church financially, but he's also giving a spiritual safeguard to these younger, these younger widows by telling them to get remarried. Um, all of that language that we saw there of them turning aside to Satan, he's trying to give them a safeguard to, to get them married, to get them serving in their house, to serving their husbands. He's giving a safeguard for them. Um, so Paul goes on from that to this next group in the church that he's going to address. It's a group he's already addressed. But just as the widows are to be honored, Paul's going to go on to say now in verse 17 that there's elders in the church that are to be honored. And as we establish that this, this, this honoring of the widows, this honoring of the elders is a financial honoring. And this honoring is only for a specific group of elders. Um, let's read verse 17. It says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so this text is interesting because Paul is making distinctions even within the category of the eldership. You have the categories of elders that he, or overseers that he, that he distinguished in chapter three by giving the qualifications for them. But now he's singling out even a group within the elders that it's a group that we refer to as the preaching elder or the teaching elder. These are the elders who are typically more gifted, more called to give themselves to full-time preaching or teaching of the word of God. And just as the honoring of the widows was financial, um, so is the honoring of these elders. This specific group of elders is to be fully supported by the church 
And how do we know this is, again, uh, speaking financially? Because of verse 18, it said, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he was threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul, in order to prove his point, gives us two quotes from the scriptures. The first one is Deuteronomy 25.4. That text in Deuteronomy is saying, While the ox is working, don't, don't muzzle him, don't cover his mouth. Let him, let him eat from his work. Let him um, gather from his own work and let him benefit from that. Don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. That's from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And does anybody know what Old Testament book the next quote is from? What's the, what's the labor is worthy of his wages? What Old Testament book is that quote from? No, it's a good guess. It's not from the Old Testament. It's actually from the Gospel of Luke, which is very interesting because Paul's designating these as the Scriptures. For the Scriptures say, and he's quoting word for word the Gospel of Luke. 10.7, that's right. Which is just one of those instances, it's, it's very interesting that even within the Scripture, we have the Scriptures affirming the Scriptures. And that, that word that I'm using there when I say Scriptures is the word graphe which is a very technical Greek word that when the Apostle Paul uses it in the New Testament, it only refers to what we consider the inscripturated word of God. It's used 51 times in the New Testament, 51 out of 51. It's speaking of the scriptures as far as normally Old Testament quotes. But here he quotes the scriptures and quotes the Gospel of Luke. Very interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But there, I mean, clearly the quote is saying, the labor is worthy of his wages, meaning if you have a, a man of God who is fully devoted to the work, and as we saw in the qualifications of an elder, if somebody desires the work of an elder, especially the preaching and teaching work, um, if he's devoted full time to that work, the church is responsible to financially take care of him, and, to, and he's worthy of his wages. So the church in that sense is to honor those elders in that way and to pay them full time for their work. Um, there's also another way. There's also another way to honor the elders of the church, another proper way to honor the elders of the church. And verse 19 is not a financial honoring, but it says this. It says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That's very interesting. That um, This is important because the leadership of the church is always going to have uh, the proverbial target on their backs. Um, there's many people in the church and even outside of the church who for many different reasons would like to attack the elders of the church. But God has put this safeguard here for his representatives um, because his holy name is at stake when it comes to the leadership of his church. But notice it's very important to, to keep reading because uh, to the extent that... Um, God's protecting the elders, but not to the extent that they're unaccountable. Because look what happens to those who actually have legitimate sin, those who have, who have legitimate witnesses against their sin. Verse 20 says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. See that? that because the glory of God, as I said, is at stake, um, God has set up parameters so as to protect the elders from false accusation, 
But those elders who are in sin and have legitimate accusations against them, they're to be rebuked in such a way, such, uh, without such partiality, um, as he'll go on to say, that, that, that everyone will know that the church does not approve of this sin and that the church is willing to deal with this sin and that this is not part of God's will for his people. Just making a separation between those who willfully sin and don't repent um, it's really just another aspect of church discipline. We kind of already went through that um, in earlier texts, but that's just another form of church discipline that uh, even the elders, there's to be no partiality in this, um, that they're to be rebuked even in the presence of all if they're unrepentant in, in sin. So all of that to say is that we, that we already know the reason the Apostle Paul gave so many uh, qualifications for the leadership in chapter 3 of the church is that um, as I said, the glory of God is at stake in that sense. Not only uh, to safeguard the faith of people in the church, because when you put people in leadership and they, they fall away or they give themselves over to gross sin, um, people's faith is, people stumble over that, right? People's faith is at stake. Not only people's faith, but the, the view of the church from the outsiders is also at stake, Right, the Gentiles blaspheme because of because of our sins. Right, it gives them, in a sense, not an excusable excuse, but um, it gives them a reason to, oh, you know, Christians, that's all fake. There's nothing to that. That's not real. There's no spirit of God empowering them. They're just all a bunch of sinners, just like we are. But see, we we show by church discipline and these things that we don't approve of this. And as we know, God uses this. Um, as a means to sanctify us and to keep us on the straight and narrow. Um, the, the leadership in the church is a, is a very scary place to be. I think in verse 22, that's why the Apostle Paul goes on to remind Timothy of this. He says, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So that's a high calling for us as a church to be careful who it is that we ordain, right? Whether it's to the deaconate, to the eldership, whatever it is. When we lay hands on somebody, we're putting them in a position, we're raising them to a position that brings with it a great fall if they fall with much consequences. And people's, as I said, people's faith is at stake. The view of the church from the outside is at stake. And so we must be very careful um, in that sense. And that's why I'm glad, you know, that's in a sense why, I wanted to go through this because there's many men that we want to raise up in this church. And I'm glad we got a chance to go through like the qualifications. So all of us know what the qualifications are for an elder. So we can all amen together, right? With whatever men the Lord raises up for us. Um, we can all uh, agree together on that and, and work together on that because that's really how uh, I didn't get into that a lot, but I think as you see men affirm being affirmed into the, into the church, um, our church structure, this is how, we, this is how we, we entitle our church structure. We're elder-led with congregational involvement, right? Most people don't qualify. I mean, mo most Reformed churches are elder-led, right? Meaning you have elders who do the governing and they decide these major decisions. But we add the qualification with congregational involvement because you see that in the scriptures quite often. That all of language like all of the church agreed with the apostles, so there's this agreement, right? And so I think even as we talk about raising up elders, um, what's the example I just used earlier from Acts chapter 6 where this, I think it is the, the 
a, a, prime, a, a primate view of the, the diaconate where the apostles told the people, you know, who among you, right, is worthy? Who among you is full of the Holy Spirit and is able for this duty? And so the church together with the apostles recognized these men as being worthy of this calling and they agreed together and the apostles laid their hands on them. So we do encourage church involvement. That's why anybody we raise up, especially as for the deacons, it says to give a time of testing, right? That time of testing is for you, the church, to affirm, to come to us with concerns, to address those men. So elder leadership, elder-led with congregational involvement is our church structure, right? Which is what we're supposed to be talking about because I'm supposed to be doing church, the doctrine of the church. So, But as I said, 1 Timothy, I think, is just that. This book is telling us how we are to manage ourselves in the household of God. And so all of this is very relevant for that. We've only got one chapter left. You guys are muscling through with me. I appreciate that by the grace of God. But this is, I think, right, it's chapter 5. When's the last time you studied this big section on widows? How long has that been? So it's good that we expose ourselves to this. So, again, so we have unity in all of these things. So let's pray and we'll go to worship. Well, Father, Father, where would we be without your word, Lord? We would, be, we would be wandering around aimlessly, Lord, without direction, sheep without a shepherd, Lord. So we thank you and we praise you for revealing yourself, revealing all of these details to us about how it is that we are to manage the household of God, how it is that we are to glorify you, Lord. We thank you for the specificity, Lord, of giving us details in how it is that we are to live out the different callings that we have in our lives, Lord. We know that apart from your spirit, we are wholly unable, Lord. So my prayer is for our church, for myself, Lord. Give us your spirit, Lord, that we can glorify you and do what your scriptures call us to for your namesake and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sorry I didn't get to your, your favorite verse, drink a little wine. <laughs> I was about to ask about it. Like, doesn't it seem like it just randomly put there, though? It does seem random, like, a little bit. Where did you get Where'd this? that come from? Yeah, where, what's the context? Like, drink, drink a little, a little wine, wine. Your oh, It's man. like he forgot to put it somewhere. Like, <laughs> I mean... Someone's going on with What's this? They, they use the language of this is an ad hoc, an ad hoc, um, an ad hoc letter. Like, it's just Paul off the top of his dome, like, Ready. just thinking, like, Timothy, like, you know, give this to Timothy. It's not like it's disorganized. There's right. organization, it's but, but it's very personal, and he just thinks of Timothy, oh, your stomach, you know, like, Timothy, you know, it's just very interesting how, you know, God uses that. All right. So Thank you, brother. I had completely thought that uh, <laughs> that not providing for your uh, uh, members of your own household was worse than believers.